Amen. Thank you, Tony. Uh, so good morning again. We are continuing in a series through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and it is such a daunting task that um, we can somewhat, we're going to get to places where we can pick and choose thematically. And this morning we've come to a section beginning in chapter 4, verse 35, that really goes all the way to the end of chapter 5. But we are just going to read the one scene of Jesus calming the storm in chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. And then, and then we're going to pick up verse 36, which ties this whole section together. So if you uh, would read along with me, it's printed for you in your worship folder. It's on the screen behind me as well. And if you're at home, it should be in your screen. But if you want to follow along in your Bible, feel free. Please do that. Let's read. <clears throat> on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, that is Jesus, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took, he took them with, he took, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And then later in the, in the passage, a number of different scenes tied together by the same theme. Jesus is with Jairus, uh, the leader of, uh, a leader uh, there in, in that city. And he's in, it says this, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said, to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. This is the word of the Lord. Say with me, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, in verse 40, he poses a question, why are you so afraid? And it is something to ponder. Ponder for a second. We are safer than we have ever been before in any time in history our nation is, from seatbelts to airbags in our cars. Listen, when I was a kid, if you had a station wagon, you threw like an, a mattress down the back of that thing, let the kids roll around, hightailing it down on I-75 at 85 miles an hour. Seatbelts, airbags, the removal of lead paint and asbestos in our homes, antibiotics and vaccines that protect us from diseases that a century ago would have been fatal, technology that lets you keep track of where your kids are at all times, unless they're sneaky, and they are. Safety is the holy grail of our culture. We are more prosperous and safer than ever. We have more safety in place than almost any society in history. And yet, it has not made us any less afraid. We are at the same time more skittish and panicky than ever. So what's the deal? Why, why are we so afraid? It's the question Jesus asks, right? It's the question we have to ask ourselves. Why? Are we so afraid? Well, this section of Mark, beginning in chapter 4, verse 35, and all the way through the end of chapter 5, is made up of three scenes. So there's, there's three stories back to back to back, but one lesson in each of them. And I'm the preacher, you're not, so I get to pick the part I want to preach about, I suppose. Uh, but of these three, this is my favorite, and so we're going to focus on the story of Jesus on the lake with his disciples. But in chapter 4, verse 40, he says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then in 536, which we read, he said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. In both statements, you see how he's put fear and faith 
pitted against one another, side by side, pitted against one another. And the lesson being that in order to walk in his ways, which is our overarching theme for this series, in order to be people who can keep up with him, because remember, he's moving. Jesus is going somewhere. He's, he's on a mission, and he wants you to be on that mission with him. But in order to be walking in his ways and to keep up with his spirit, you have to deal with your fear. You have to deal with your fear. You can't make peace with your fear. And so there's a contrast that we're shown here in this text between, the, on the one hand, the panicky disciples, who are a picture of fear, and, on the other hand, the peaceful Savior, who is a picture of faith, And as we see those two things side by side, the question obviously that we would ask is, well, then how can we, as panicky or fearful as we might still find ourselves being at times, how can we go from living afraid to living by faith? How can we go from fear to faith? So you see the picture of fear and the picture of faith, and then there's a little bit in the text about how you and I can be people who can live like Jesus and not like his disciples here, because that's ultimately what this text is wanting us to embrace. So first, let's look together. You have a picture of fear. Okay, do you see the panicky disciples? I love this story so much. I really do. Uh, I love it so much because it, uh, it, there's so much of me in it, and there's so much of my story in it, but it also it shows so clearly a couple things, what fear looks like and also where fear comes from. And so let's take a moment and talk about each of those. But before we do, let me be careful to say this, that this kind of fear that we see here is sinful. This is sinful, the disciples here. And we'll see this as we go along. It is a function of our sinful spiritual condition. The first man and the first woman were never afraid. But as soon as they sinned, you remember what they did? They dove into the bushes. And God came and said, Why are you hiding? And what did Adam say? I was afraid. It was the first time. The first time they'd ever been afraid. Fear is a product of sin. But here's what I want to say very clearly. We are mind, body, and soul creatures. There are all kinds of bodily reasons for fear and anxiety, and there are also spiritual reasons. There's never a time when we're not bodily engaged, and there's never a time when we're not spiritually engaged. And it's profoundly dehumanizing to ignore the body, to ignore brain chemistry and all of these sorts of things as you talk about this subject, but it is also profoundly dehumanizing to ignore the heart, to ignore our moral spiritual disposition. In this setting, because that's what we do here, we're going to talk about the spiritual dynamics of fear. Because that's the only thing I'm really authorized to talk about, and it's really really the main thing the text is talking about. So let's just keep that in mind as we go along. But very clearly, what you see here from these disciples is something that is sinful. Jesus rebukes the wind, and then he rebukes them. And so we see what fear looks like, okay? Let's look. Here we see the disciples. They're struggling against the storm. But what we learn is that the real storm is not the storm they're going through. The real storm is the storm they're experiencing within them. The storm that came up on the sea, what happened is it got inside and created a storm of anxiety and fear in their hearts. Look there, verse 37. Mark describes it as a great windstorm. It's stronger in the Greek than that. There's a prefix attached to the word storm, and the prefix is mega. So this is a mega storm, which is kind of funny. because I've been, I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and I know you'll read people talk about the winds kind of come down into that little canyon there and create, but it's a lake, guys. I mean, really. I mean, so what's, what's being said here, and by the way, like, can we stop with, like, the, the Disney names for hurricanes? That freaks me out, man. Fiona, 
Fiona was the beautiful princess who was actually an ogre. Let's remember that, right? Like, I don't... <laughs> Let's be careful about how we name these things. The point is that they were experiencing what they were going through as a megastorm. There are storms, and then there are megastorms. And what made it a megastorm is the way that the storm came in and started to be a storm in their hearts as well, okay? Now, fear, not faith, which is the contrast here, is allowing your insides, I'm going to define fear. Fear, not faith, is allowing your insides to be determined by what's happening on the outside. If the sea is calm, then you're calm, but as soon as the winds and the waves pick up, you start to be tossed to and fro emotionally your insides begin to match your circumstances. What's going on around you begins to dictate what's going on in you because there's no barrier. There's no barrier to keep the storm outside from becoming a storm inside. And so you live from the outside in. If it's good out there, if it's good out here, you're good in here. If it's bad out here, then it's very easy for it to become bad in here. And there are actually two words in these verses that translate fear. When Jesus said to the disciples in verse 40, why are you so afraid? He used a word there that describes a person who is timid and cowardly, who's jumpy, somebody who is easily frightened. And so fear is allowing your insides to be determined by your outsides. And that's a real problem because, as we know, life is hardly ever dead calm. So a fearful person, like the one being described here, is hardly ever not afraid. Because it's never... a calm enough out here for them to be able to find a way to be calm in here. And so we see this is what we mean by fear. This person whose insides are matching their outsides, and so they're just kind of jumping and panicky and fearful all the time because life is never, never, brief moments, but otherwise never really going the way we want it to. But we also see where the fear comes from, and this is really important as well. Jesus is very explicit. It was their lack of faith. And this is the hard part about this, okay? It's, it is, it's hard to wrestle with this. But he said, verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? He's saying they should have not been afraid. It was wrong for them to be this afraid. They are not as far along as they should have been by now. There, there's fear. Uh, and then there's the kind of dehabilitating fear where you start to unravel the moment the winds begin to pick up. There are times when fear and faith go hand in hand, and you might be fearful, but you're still full of faith. And, you know, courage is not the absence of fear, courage, you know, all that stuff that we talk about. But, but those two things exist side by side. But in this case, what Jesus is diagnosing is that their fear has become so pronounced, it has swallowed up their faith. They have no faith. They've lost their faith. Mark's stronger here than Matthew. Uh, for example, this, this story is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. But in Matthew, Jesus says it this way to them. This is Matthew 8, 26. Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Fears little faith, according to Matthew, as he re recounts this. But here, Mark, see, and this is Mark. Mark's in your face. Mark is, Mark's not messing around. Mark's got somewhere to be, okay? He's not one for small talk. He, he just wants to get to the point. For Mark, fear signals no faith. Fear means unbelief. And neither Mark nor Jesus in Mark has much sympathy for this kind of fear because it is rooted in what C.S. Lewis described as dreadful thoughts about God. In his book, A Grief Observed, uh, where he is um, pondering the death of his wife, 
He lost his wife to cancer, and he wrote this. He said, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but rather, so this is what God really is like. Deceive yourself no longer. And as usual, he is spot on, describing the secret fear, the secret doubt we all carry, that God is really not good, that we are just lying to ourselves. And the moment some evidence presents itself to verify our suspicions, we give in to our doubts and suspicions. We find ourselves in some kind of storm and immediately put God on trial. That's what's happening. The disciples woke Jesus up and began to bring charges against him. Do you see it? Verse 38, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's quite a strong accusation, actually. What would make them think that? I mean, why, why would they jump to that? What would make them come to that conclusion? Again, this is unique to Mark. In the other Gospels, they don't say it quite so strongly, but here it's very clear. I mean, again, Mark's just not one. He's not one for nuance. He just is right to the point. It's very clear. They doubt his goodness, not his power necessarily, do you see what they, where the accusation, they, they are accusing his heart. His heart is the problem. He doesn't care. And that, friends, is where every sin begins. In the question, is God good? Does he care? Can I trust him? And those questions are rooted in a lie that was whispered to our hearts by the enemy in the garden, which we just talked, we confessed a minute ago. And here is the lie. God is not good. He does not love you. He's holding out on you. You're deceiving yourself and thinking anything else. And if you dig down deep enough into any spiritual struggle, you find its roots there, doubting God's goodness. That is the root of every struggle spiritually. Faith, faith is judging your circumstances by God's love. Unbelief is judging God's love by your circumstances. And this is where fear comes from, dreadful thoughts of God, because you're going through something that's so scary or maybe so painful or perhaps so long that you begin to doubt his goodness and love. And it's hard. Listen, it's hard to think of this as being sinful, but it is. And I know that because Jesus responds with a rebuke. Look at verse 39. He rebuke. He stands up and rebukes in a way that stilled the winds and the sea. But does the rebuke still our doubts? Does it calm our fears? I can only speak for myself, and I can tell you that in most cases it does not. They rage on, and all they do is make us more and more afraid. These panicky disciples, I don't know about you, but I see myself so clearly in them. I have a picture of this scene in my office. It's the one kind of cheesy old Christian bookstore painting that you bought back, you know, in those days with a little scripture. But I kept it because it is, it is the daily struggle of my life to not be like these panicky disciples, but instead to be like the peaceful savior. And that's the second thing. You have a picture of fear, but you also have a picture of faith here. And there could not be more of a contrast. Again, I love this story so much because I marvel at Jesus. Isn't it, isn't it just amazing? Here he is asleep in the bow of the boat, on the pillow. And it's a picture of what faith is and also what faith does. 
And we need to talk about each of those together, too. So what faith is? See, if fear is having your insides determined by what's going on outside, then just turn that around. Faith is being able to maintain your confidence and calm in both good and bad circumstances. I mean, with the disciples, the storm that they were going through, what they were facing here, became the storm in their hearts. But not Jesus. The storm didn't make him shaky. It didn't rattle his confidence in God, not one bit. The prophet Isaiah talks about the person who's kept in perfect peace because his mind is stayed on God. That's Isaiah 26.3. And it's such an encouraging promise. And we see it modeled and displayed here in Jesus who is perfectly at peace. Even as the boat begins to fill with water and threaten to sink. In Philippians 4, verse 6, Paul describes peace using the analogy of a fort or a castle. In other words, faith, like you see in Jesus here, can create strong walls around your insides that keep the storms out. No matter what's going on out there, you, it doesn't affect in here because there's, there's, there's these high walls that don't allow stuff to get in. You don't ride the waves emotionally. There's this supernatural ability to keep your composure and even lie down and go to sleep. Even... When things outwardly seem to be falling apart, you can face uncertainty at work. You know, a round of a new round of layoffs, and no, you know what? I was I was with a friend this week who's enduring something like that, and I, it's just amazing to me to hear him say, "You know what? All will be well." Now he may not have believed that, but he let you know he led us to believe that he believed that. But I think that's true. I think it's true of him, and I think it's true of a lot. Like this ability to be able to be in the middle of a really hard thing, the first year of teaching, and to be just getting crushed by doing that, and to say, you know what? It's going to be okay, because Jesus is in the boat with me. This is what we're talking about. How many times? How many times throughout Scripture does God say, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? We read it this week, right? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, don't be afraid. We'll read it this week. We read it last week. If, you're, if you missed it, we're going to read it again in Joshua 1 this week. Same thing. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. We are not of those who shrink back, but of those who have faith and endure. And that's that verse just before the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Fear makes you timid and cautious and risk avoidant. Faith fills you with courage and makes you adventurous. So faith is this ability to just... Go at it and to keep going even when it gets hard. But also look at see what faith does. And here's my favorite part. One of the things we learn from this text is that faith is contagious. It's contagious. Jeff Skipper, who was a pastor here for a while, and I used to go along with this, and he, he kind of he called foul on this, and I think they watched. So, Jeff, if you're watching, we love you, brother. I still disagree with you about this, okay? So you can text me this week, and we can talk about it again. But here's what I want to say. The stormy sea created in the disciples a stormy heart. They live from the outside in. Their insides conformed to the outside. But Jesus lived from the inside out, the outside. Do you see what happens? The outside begins to conform to his insides. That's powerful. What was Jesus, what, what was Jesus like inside? And do you see... The insides, Jesus' insides came out and changed the outside. They changed the circumstances. The disciples were overwhelmed by the storm. But then the storm was overwhelmed by Jesus' faith. 
It's truly remarkable. Jesus was at peace, so he could speak peace. The calm he experienced got inside, got inside out. It came out, and it created calm. He awoke, it says, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and he said, peace, be still, and it was still. Now, this point I'm making isn't just my point. It's, uh, it's something that Charles Spurgeon said, and I'll be honest, I typically try not to disagree with Spurgeon, and I would caution Jeff Skipper of ever disagreeing with Spurgeon as well. So I'm just channeling him here. He said this in a sermon he wrote on this passage. He said, he that hath peace can make peace. Then he applies this to our lives in a way that, this is kind of classic Spurgeon. He says, sleeping his sleep, we shall awake in his rested energy and treat the winds and the waves as things subject to the power of faith and they're commanded into quiet. Our calm shall work marvels in the little ships whereof others are captains. Our confidence shall prove contagious. The timid shall grow brave. The contentious shall cool down to patience. Only the matter must begin within ourselves. We cannot create calm till we are calm. So many ways to apply this. If you're, but one, if you're familiar with systems theory or family systems theory, if not, it's, it's interesting, it's fascinating. It, it suggests that families and groups are so connected emotionally, even churches like this, we can all as a community be so connected emotionally that really you operate as one emotional unit. And so something like anxiety is experienced collectively. So if there's anxiety, it's anxiety in the system. It's not just like that one person. Everybody feels it and it kind of bounces around from person to person and it becomes contagious among all the individual members of the family or the group or the church or the school or whatever. And it can become chronic. And when it becomes chronic, you begin to, you begin to um, operate as a unit in very destructive ways. And the only way out, this is Edwin Friedman wrote about this. He kind of originated some of these thoughts and others he was building on. He said the only way out of that situation where there's chronic, um, destructive anxiety that's bouncing around the system is for someone in the system to be a non-anxious presence. In other words, to be differentiated enough to remain immune from the collective anxiety. And who, if, if there is such a person, that person is the leader. And that's the person that you put the hope in that person to be, to be able to combat all of the collective anxiety and actually begin to bring peace and harmony and, and, you know, and all that and, and calm into the system. Now, that's just one example. But here's the point. If you are at peace, you can make peace. Faith moves mountains. Faith moves mountains. Don't be afraid of that. I know it says PCA on the sign out there. Faith moves mountains. Faith can calm seas. What God is doing in you, the dads, the most important thing happening in your family is what God is doing in you. Because what he's doing in you can become, can become part of what he's doing in your family. And so we need to be invested in this. Faith moves mountains. So third then, if that's true, then we need to finish by asking the question, well then how do we move from fear to faith? How do we, how do we be more and more like Jesus, and, uh, you know, the peaceful Savior, and less and less like the panicky disciples? And here's how it happens in the text. Look at this. First, they were afraid of the mega storm, verse 37. A great storm. Do you see it characterizes that? A great windstorm. But by the end, they were mega afraid of Jesus. There's a play on words there. It's, 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 it's absolutely intentional. They were, there was a mega storm that 
had them so afraid, but by the end, verse 41, they were mega afraid of Jesus. The great windstorm made them afraid, and the great fear that they, that they were filled with after Jesus calmed the storm made them unafraid. The disciples were overwhelmed by the storm, even with the creator in the boat, but by the end, they were overwhelmed by him. And that's the best definition of the fear of the Lord that I know, to be overwhelmed by all that God is, by his power and his mercy, by his holiness and his righteousness and his grace and his, and his love, to be tremble with reverence and joy before the awesome power and dazzling beauty of the one who, with one word, can make the winds and waves be still. Michael Reeves, who is one of my absolute favorite authors on the spiritual life, has written a new book called Rejoice and Tremble, and it's really wonderful. I spent the week reading it this week, and his premise is this, that the loss of the fear of God is what has ushered in our modern age of anxiety. Consequently, the fear of God is the only antidote. The disciples were afraid because they did not properly fear God. Then Jesus calmed the storm, and then they began to rightly fear, and that fear is what can make you and I unafraid. Does that make sense? That's really what the text is teaching us. There's a difference between fearing God and being afraid of him. If you fear God, the way the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, when you read that phrase, fear of the Lord, if you fear God, then you won't be afraid of him. And if you're not afraid of him, then you won't be afraid of anything else either. This is what Michael Reeves says in his book. He says, when the Bible talks about the fear of God or the fear of the Lord, it doesn't mean that you should be afraid of God. It doesn't even mean to respect or reverence him. It means to be so overwhelmed that you literally begin to tremble in your soul by all that God is, by his power and his majesty and his love and his forgiveness, to be so overwhelmed by God that everything else seems small in comparison, even storms. Recent scientific studies confirm the incredible benefits of awe. This was fascinating to me. The benefits of awe for healthy living. One study from 2000, and I know you can quote studies. I could give you the, if you really want the data on this, but one study from 2018 demonstrated the impact of awe on well-being and stress-related symptoms. After experiences of awe, symptoms of PTSD decreased, uh, while scores of general happiness and satisfaction improved. Another study in 2015 showed that people who experienced more awe had better immune health. It showed conclusively how awe has been linked to lower levels of pro-inflammatory proteins associated with diabetes and heart disease and depression. Awe is good for your emotional and physical health. Doesn't it make sense, though, that we're designed to fear the Lord? It's the way he made us. In your body chemistry, in the way... In the way your body is revealing spiritual truths, awe is an antidote to fear. I think of the line of an amazing grace, the song we all know so well, probably the best line that nobody ever quotes. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." See, that's it. That's, that's the thing right there. The first step in the spiritual life is to be overwhelmed by the glory and holiness of God in light of your sins. And to have those two realities, those two realities, God's glory and holiness and incomparability and my sinfulness, those two realities are like tectonic plates beneath the surface of your life. And just, just like the tectonic plates beneath the crust of the earth, when they crash in together, when the reality of God's holiness collides with the reality of your sin, what's the result? An earthquake. 
And there are punctuated experiences of, the, of, this, of this happening, like in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah meets the Lord and says, woe is me. But in some sense, that tension is always there. That tension is always there, and it's always, there's always a rub, and it's all, there's friction always there. And so we're always quaking at the experience of having God's holiness and, and justice and, and, um, you know, and glory rub up against the reality of our sins. And if you never go past that step, then you'll just be afraid of God your whole life. And because you're afraid of him, you'll be afraid of everything else. You'll be plagued with doubts, with dreadful thoughts about God, and you'll live with a guilty conscience, constantly condemning you, and the result is you'll live afraid. But according to John Newton, it's, that, it's grace that leads you to that kind of fear. You need to have that kind of experience. You need to have fear before God in light of your, in light of your holiness. But you also... You have to fear God before you cannot be afraid of him. You have to be overwhelmed by his glory and power and holiness in order to be overwhelmed by his love and mercy and forgiveness. But that's the whole point is to move past. It's grace that brings you to that experience and then it's grace that relieves those fears. So listen, you, you, you see this sort of spiritual progression, this spiritual journey, even in simple verses like Psalm 130 verse 4, which is crucial. The psalmist says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You hear that? Like, if you start counting sins, God, we are all screwed. Forgive my language. Like, we're all just in big trouble. But with you, there's forgiveness. Therefore, you're feared, he says. You see, you see, you see, the, you see the journey? That fear at the end. That part, that's, that's the part that means being overwhelmed by grace, joyfully trembling because we are forgiven in love by a God who, if he were to count sins, we're done. Game over. Like, lights out, it's over. Despite all of our worst parts, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but shows us mercy and forgiveness, and we tremble at the wonder of it. If your faith is in Jesus... Here's the great news this morning. You never have to question whether God cares. When you're in a storm, the real storm is the doubt. The accusations of your heart that God, that God doesn't care, that he sees, but he's not coming to the rescue because maybe, you know, he's mad at you or maybe, maybe you just need to be taught a lesson or whatever it is, you probably deserve it. You hear, right? You hear all that? So the fear underneath all of the other fear is this fear of being forsaken by God, having your worst suspicions confirmed. So this is what God is really like. Yep, I knew it all along. See, I've just been, I've just been deluding myself into thinking otherwise. This, this is how it really works. But see, if you want to know what God is really like, because that is the issue, right? What, if you want to know what God is really like, you have to answer this crucial question. This is something Michael Reeves did in his book, and it just... It's deep, okay? We're going to go deep here for one second, but it's really, really helpful. If you want to know what God is really like, here's the question. Here's the crucial question. What was God doing before creation? You say, what? What does that have to do with anything? Listen, what was God doing before creation? What is God like in himself, in the privacy of eternity, before he spoke the world into being? And in the fourth century, a debate arose about this issue, and a young elder from Alexandria named Pelagius taught that he taught that Jesus was created and not God. It was eventually deemed a heresy, but here's what, that Jesus was created and not God because he believed that God was fundamentally creator. 
Before anything else, he was creator. And then another young leader in the church, Athanasius, he disagreed. He said, if God's essential identity is creator, then he needs a creation to rule in order to be who he is. But God existed in eternity before he ever created, and he was happy and self-sufficient and dependent on nothing. And out of that debate is where our doctrine of the Trinity came from. But if God is Trinity, if he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that crucial doctrine of the faith, if he is in fact Trinity, then he is not essentially creator. He is essentially Father. He was father before he was creator. And isn't that exactly what the Apostles' Creed says? The Apostles' Creed does not, says, does not say we believe in God, the creator almighty, father. What's it say? We believe in God, the father almighty, maker of heaven and earth, because he was father before he was creator. Are you tracking yet? Do you see the significance of that? Here's what it means. Father, Redeemer, Savior, that is the deepest revelation of God's glory. What is God really like? In his essence, in his person, what is he really like? It's revealed in the gospel when you see him in Jesus, when you see his love for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, then you'll never ask ever again if he cares you will be able to lie down and rest even in the storm, trusting God's power, but even more his heart because, because what is being revealed to us in this person of Jesus is that God is essentially in himself even before he is creator. He is father, he is redeemer, he is savior. Which means love is essential to who he is. And when you think about the cross of Jesus, Often we think about the physical agony of it, but that's not right. The real agony was the spiritual reality. The real storm was being forsaken by God, as I've said. That's why storms are so scary. They churn up feelings of being abandoned by God. But listen, on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the curse of our sins. He was abandoned by God, and in his dying moments, he cried out like they do here, Do you not care that I am perishing? And there was no reassuring voice. The storm of God's wrath was unleashed in all of its fury upon him. The waves broke over him, and he, we're told, sank down to the very depths of hell. But just like Jonah in the Old Testament, his death was the end of our storm. This is the gospel. The storm of God's wrath has ceased for those who believe. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you can fear God without being afraid of him. You can stop being afraid and believe instead because of the great work that Jesus has done on your behalf. Because Jesus endured for you the ultimate cosmic storm of God's wrath. When you go through a storm, you might not know exactly what's happening, but you can be absolutely sure what's not happening. God's not coming against you in judgment. He's not forsaking you in the midst of it. He's already done all of that to Jesus, and if he did it to him, he can't do it to you. But here's the thing. Let me just finish with this. We, in light of all of this, we should not make peace with our fear and anxiety. And I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I'm going to say it. I'm worried about how we have turned anxiety into a condition. I have anxiety. As if it's something we are. As if we have no choice but to learn to live with it. This text that may be true, and there are lots of legitimate reasons why that might be true of people, but from this text we learn, no matter how profound that experience might be, we must fight for faith. And faith is a gift. 
It's something the Spirit does in us, but that doesn't leave us with nothing to do. When Jesus woke, he rebuked the storm, and then he rebuked the disciples. And Martin Lloyd-Jones makes note of this. He says, we should never be like this. I mean, he was kind of a to-the-point type of person, too. He said, we should never be just so carried away by our emotions, out of control. When you find yourself beginning to spiral, he says, what you got to do is you got to say, you got to be intolerant of it. You say, you take yourself in hand. He said, faith isn't automatic. You have to activate it. You have to put it into operation by doing exactly what Jesus did here. When that storm you're going through starts to create a storm inside, you stand up in that moment and speak to that storm. You remind yourself of what you believe. You speak directly to those doubts. You say, you know what? Despite this storm, this is what I know is true, and I'm resting on this, and I'm certain of this. And though I don't understand what's happening to me I'm holding on to what I know is true until until it starts to make a difference in the way you feel see the only way to come out of being overwhelmed by the storm is to be overwhelmed instead by the one who with a word can cause the storm to cease and to know that he loves you and he's promised to never leave you or forsake you and he will hold you fast so you don't have to be afraid That's the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. That if it's a part of your life, can make you unafraid of everything else. It's what uh, a poem by F.W. Faber, he said, called the fear of God. He, He put it this way, he said, but fear is love, and love is fear. And in and out they move, but fear is an intenser joy than mere unfrightened love. And Father, when to us in heaven thou shalt thy face unveil, then more than ever will our souls before thy goodness quail. Our blessedness will be to bear the sight of thee so near, and thus eternal love will be but the ecstasy of fear. Isn't that great? So let's ask that he would do that in our hearts this morning as we finish this service together this morning. Would you pray for me? Father, would you create in us exactly what that man was writing about there, the ecstasy of fear, the kind of fearing of being overwhelmed, not just by your holiness and your greatness uh, in light of our sins, but by your humility and mercy and love and forgiveness made possible by Jesus Christ. And may the result be an intenser joy than mere unfrightened love, an ecstasy of fear that we would be so overwhelmed with you that everything else, even the really hard things we're having to go through, would seem small in comparison that we might be people who truly learn to live by faith and not by sight, who learn to believe and not be afraid so that we might bear the fruit that you desire for us to bear in the world as your people, that your kingdom may come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven indeed among us and then through us in the world, and we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, that's so great. Hey, listen, two things just before you leave. One is, uh, if you sign up to, our, to come to our membership class, if you didn't sign up, too bad you missed it, okay? You can't come last minute. We can't do that. But for those who did, we're going to meet in the fellowship hall, uh, in Covenant Hall for lunch, and then we're going to have a conversation. So know that's where that meeting is going to happen. The second thing is, is Neil Williams, who is Brad Beatty's brother, is here with us this morning. We wanted to have him. We, we were hoping to let him have some time, but we knew the service was already really full, so uh, I just didn't want his being with us to go unnoticed. He is an MTW missionary and direct and uh, area director in Azerbaijan, and we support, we recently are, are supporting him now, I think, as well. So I know that he's here. Brad would love to introduce you. Like, before you leave, get to know him a little bit as well, okay? So those two things. Uh, so just, just be mindful of that as we exit this morning. Listen, 
Friends, don't be afraid. If your faith is in Jesus, don't be afraid. If you're here and you don't know him, if you're here and you don't know him, then know that all of that fear that you feel is because you've not settled that issue with the Lord. Come to Jesus and put your faith in him and he can make it to where you can fear God but not be afraid of him. And when that happens in your life, the result will be that you won't be afraid of anything else. Don't be afraid because he is the Lord. He's promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to hold you fast. And that's what this, these words of benediction mean. So receive them as you go now with the promise that there's nothing for you to be afraid of this week because God is with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.